0: Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Michael Amico, and today we'll be talking with Rebecca Frazier. Her new book, just out from St. Martin's Press, is called The Mayflower The Families, the Voyage, and the Founding of America. And it tells the story of the Plymouth Colony by focusing on the adventures and trials of Edward Winslow, who sailed over on the Mayflower in 1620. And then it picks up the story with his son, Josiah who played a crucial role in the growing wars with the American Indians in the late 1670s. Rebecca Fraser is a writer, journalist, and broadcaster whose work has been published in Tatler, Vogue, The Times, and The Spectator. President of the Bronte Society for many years, she has written the introductions to the everyman editions of Charlotte Bronte's novels Shirley and The Professor. Her books include The Story of Britain, a single-volume history of how England was governed during the past 2,000 years, and a biography of Charlotte Bronte, which examines her life in the context of contemporary attitudes to women. Rebecca Fraser, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Let's start with the question I always begin uh, with, which is that this story, particularly uh, The Mayflower, has been told and the founding of Plymouth Colony, has been told again and again, surely for different purposes and different audiences. So why another telling and why now?
1: Well, it took a very long time to write. So why now is sort of irrelevant, really.
0: Why in the last 10 years?
1: (laughs) I I suppose that I've always been very fascinated by American history. Um, Also, having written a book about British history, um, the story of Britain, which is really about waves of immigration into England and then their sort of adaptation. Um, I w- suddenly I was passing where John Winthrop came from, um, near Albury in um, Suffolk, and someone said, "Oh, that's Groton, where John Winthrop used to worship." Mm-hmm. And I suddenly thought, "What about doing things about something about people who who didn't like this country, who?" Left And many years ago, I'd I'd read um, John Demas's book, A Little Commonwealth Family Life in Plymouth Colony. And it sort of evolved from there. They were the first people over. They were Puritans, but they were different from um, Massachusetts. And also, I was very intrigued because many years ago, I'd actually seen the three portraits of the Winslows in Pilgrim Hall Museum. And I'd been sort of surprised that they looked like um, portraits of people at the court of Charles the First. I mean, they didn't really look like Puritans. They were grandly dressed. There was gold on the two um, men's neckties. The lady looked as if she could be a friend of Queen Henrietta Mariah. Um And I thought, I'd always sort of wondered, what, what were these portraits doing in Plymouth Colony, which, um, you know, was sort of, thought To be poor, etc., and how did and so it was always at the back of my mind. And then, having done a book about um, Britain, as I said, and, and thinking about people leaving, um, someone said to me, Oh, well, you know, um, Edward Winsley has never really been covered, but he is the person who really wrote a lot of the accounts of the colony right. separate to William Bradford, um, and also, and then someone else said, oh, well, in fact, the reason those portraits were painted was that he came back to work for Cromwell. So there was an English angle, because of course, from the American point of view, it's been told again and and again and again. But this is a sort of coming at it from a British angle thinking, what was it like? Why did he return? We think of the Mayflower as a, a voyage in which Everyone stays put, and it's sort of, you know, it's one of America's great foundation myths. It's the right. beginning of everything, in a way, you could argue. And yet, what's he doing back here? And then that led to a lot of exploration, and I discovered that um, one in four New Englanders returned at the time of the Civil War. And so it all sort of, it the came English, from there. English, so Civil War. Right. English sorry, the <laughs> English Civil War. Um, And so it kind of rolled from there. Um, And I had these ideas about America, sort of liberty, freedom, which of course were anachronistic because of course what's enunciated in the 18th century is very different from um, religious separatists in the 17th century. But I didn't know all of these things. And in fact, Smith, because of this book by John Demas, is very much you know it was a very, very special place, and they retained a sort of independence of mind, so that they allowed Quakers to live um in Plymouth, whereas of course they were hanged in boston right. um, and so So I was sort of intrigued by them as a sort of as as a small group and and that's really where it where it started and Of course, being ignorant, i didn't really realize this is what the hallowed ground yeah. this was um and um, but you know it's following one unknown family, and then there are lots of sort of links to England, so it makes it it makes it more transatlantic. And I think there's quite a, a well, there is a lot of new material which came from our national archives, but in London, but that also links up with material which is in the Massachusetts Historical Society, um, in their collections. They have sort of boxes of Winslow papers.
0: Right. So, and I, I want to come back to the actually John Demos's book um a little commonwealth yeah. and also the tolerance uh that was present in Plymouth particularly in Plymouth colony at the time compared to say, yeah. Massachusetts Bay colony but let's just uh pause on on Edward Winslow as as a character for you and I'm wondering why why hasn't he been taken up um as a through line for this story I mean the way you write the story. Um Edward is is the real fire starter pioneer here. Uh he has a kind of energy that, that feels very different, uh at least, you know, as the way as way you present it, than some of the other um uh early colonists. And so it's it is sort of curious that uh he hasn't gotten the attention in the tellings um as much as say uh William Bradford um as uh, as the author of of Plymouth Plantation and then some of the other later colonists in the in the um in the 18th century um but then also this more attention gone to Massachusetts Bay and John Winthrop and those kinds of people so can you yeah. talk a little bit about maybe why Edward has well, been the focus and what's the difference that Edward brings compared to those others
1: Well I think that first of all um um Longfellow was descended from two pilgrims. In fact, he was probably descended from more, but he was descended from Priscilla Mullins and John Alton. So he writes the courtship of Miles Standish. And after um, the American Revolutionary Wars, American so long, writers are so creating let's just,
0: let's just, let's just, new... So people know Longfellow is, is Henry David Longfellow? Yeah,
1: uh, Henry Wadsworth
0: Longfellow. Wadsworth, sorry, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who's writing yeah. much later... <laughs> And uh, much
1: later, but he's he's writing, he's creating, along with other 19th century um, writers, a new literature for the new republic. And so he writes about uh, Miles Sandish, Priscilla Mullins and John um, Alden. So they become incredibly famous. And he, he didn't write about Edward Winslow's the pilgrims everyone knows about are those three. And of course, they know about William Bradford, because he wrote this this sort of jewel of 17th century American literature of Plymouth Plantation. Um, But Edward was kind of like an engine man. I mean, he was the engine, if you like, but he's been cast into shadow by that. And then, of course, as I say, he vanishes in 1646 on a mission for the whole of New England to um, Parliament in Old England, to Stop them interfering in New England, and so he 's out of the story and in fact, William Bradford was furious um, and the last four lines of Plymouth plantation are um, Edward Winslow has gone without our permission um, sort of and this pillar of our our sort of colony has vanished, and this is very distressing for us so again, there was a sort of a mystery for me, you know you know why wasn 't more known of course, there are with Winslow devotees like um um Cynthia Crusell, who runs the Winslow house in Marshfield um but he is less known I mean he's becoming more known um but it's it's really to do with sort of um you know the, the way things are published I mean for example William Bradford's manuscript vanishes um uh and is only, the actual manuscript of the book um, was taken to Boston or borrowed, um, and then stolen by the British during um, um, I'm not quite sure, I think during the uh, the Revolutionary Wars, and then it ended up in London, in West London, in the Bishop Palace, Bishop's Palace, and someone discovers it by accident. And it's only in 1855 that the whole book is published in its entirety. Sections have been published by right. people who had access to the manuscript, but the whole thing doesn't actually come out properly till the mid 19th century. So there are all sort of problems to do with sources and right. and stuff. So that's one reason. Um, and um, I think if you if you sort of dive into the primary sources, then Edward Winslow very much comes to the fore um, as this um, uh, ambassador to the Indians. And I was very intrigued that he had worked for publishers in London, which specialised in travel literature, because that was a huge growth area um, in the early 17th century. Um, So I think, and I think he was there when Pocahontas comes visiting and is treated in this very sort of grand way and is treated as an emperor's daughter, which of course the British regarded her as being. And I think that 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 got his that made him excited, probably more excited than some of the other pilgrims. Right,
0: um, so, he, so he sees <laughs> Pocahontas in the court in in London.
1: Well, he 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 was he was there when she arrived, and this was a tremendous excitement for everybody. I mean, she was married to a Virginian planter. She was dressed in, you know, she arrives wearing beautiful of a beautiful court costume um, in that we have this this um, engraving of the portrait made of her at the time by Simon de Pass um, when she's got a ruff on. I mean, she has, her dress is Elizabethan as Queen Elizabeth. Um, and she sits, we have documents about her sitting on James I's right hand and so, so it's a, a a huge excitement for London that an Indian princess has arrived. I mean, Pocahontas is a star then and sort of a star now. Um, right,
0: exactly. And this is all.
1: Um, this so is I think
0: before they
1: before go, he gets uh, to Leiden. Exactly. So <laughs>
0: yeah. In Leiden is in Holland, and then that's before they the Mayflower sails for the New World. So yeah counter with, with yeah. Johannes, um, his interest in uh, American Indian culture is happening in, all before the founding of Plymouth.
1: Yeah, but but also I would say that this isn't something just common to Edward Winslow. The educated world in London, the sort of reading public uh, and intellectuals are very, very curious about the new world. And John Donne, the poet is preaching to the Virginia Company, um, and it's the sort of it's the topic of interest of the day. And in the late uh, 16th century, you have Montaigne writing essays about the American Indians. So the question is, who are they? Where have they come from? And then, as you know, there there comes this sort of excitement. Could they be some of the lost tribes of Israel who right. who were dispersed in the eighth century? before the common era. So so this is a it's not just her arrival, this is part of huge interest in the American Indian tribes, did they survive the flood? I mean it's it's how do you fit these new people into a Eurocentric Christian chronology, for good or bad, that was their point of view in the seventeenth century in London. Right. So so there is very great excitement at the thought of, of of them and um it it's really a a very sort of exciting moment um intellectually um and also, and I think that that feeds into Edward Winslow's approach to things because he is really passionately interested in the American Indian tribes or the Native yeah. Americans
0: right and you you talk about him as as an ethnographer and, and that his that his writings um from Plymouth and its environs are essentially ethnographies and i and i I want to come back to that in one second, but I just want to sort of summarize what we 've been saying, which is that you know edward Winslow may may not be as well known because of just the history of publications and when when and how and for what reasons stories are told over the last few hundred years, yeah, and so I mean people today might just think, well, if i don 't know who he is. Especially in a story that apparently most Americans know. If I don't know who he is, then he must not be important. But which is completely not true, because the way that these stories have been received um, are products of of the history of publication, and which is intertwined yeah. with, with politics and religion and all sorts of things.
1: No, I agree. Yeah. I mean, for example, Governor John Carver. It's fantastically famous because of Thanksgiving, but actually he dies in the first year of Plymouth Colony. So he's not there. He's there for like three months. He dies in April. Um, And yet he is probably the most famous pilgrim you can think of. And of course, that's, you know, of course, that's right. But actually, he isn't there for the rest of the colony. That's to do with the sort of, I don't know how you describe the sort of luck of history or the sort of, he has become this tremendous figure because he was the person who who sat um, talking, sort of making a peace treaty with, with the Wampanoags. But actually he is out of the picture. I think that's, he is out of the picture very soon after that. I mean, he dies almost immediately.
0: Right, so he has this treaty with, with, with the Wampanoags, um, but then you talk about, Edward's relationship with the Indians is, yeah. is much more complex and, and, and much longer. Yes. Edward survives. Um, so now that you've sort of mentioned this, this, the history of Thanksgiving, how do you see Edward's role in Thanksgiving as it's developed or the see the initial kind of coming together of these cultures?
1: Well, to defend Edward, um, which of course I want to do, he is the person who the, the first sort of document which is sort of used as sort of documentation of Thanksgiving, now that it's become such a very, very important coming together of peoples, um, is written by him in December sixteen twenty one and he does describe um how Massasoit comes and feasts with them with um ninety of his men and he brings turkey and um deer. And that is the first although Scholars quibble, can you say this is really Thanksgiving? What is it? Is it Harvest Festival? That is the first, that is a a piece of a great feast between the American Indians and the pilgrims of enormous excitement.
0: Right, as opposed to what John Carver is remembered for, which is actually the treaty.
1: Yes, I mean, he is the person, but it's all been sort of rolled into one because um, he is dead. By December 1621, he makes the, he has the meeting with Massasoit, but the, by the time we have the first Thanksgiving documented, um, he is no longer alive. Right. He dies out of sort of exhaustion and strain in the fields.
0: Right. And and it's really Edward's sort of ongoing relationship with the Indians that involves um, not just the sharing of food, but of resources and knowledge that is rolled into this idea of Thanksgiving more broadly, which is why you're stressing and redeeming Edward's role in the long term.
1: Yes. I mean, um, so the, the Mayflower leaves and very, very soon after that, John Carver collapses in the fields planting. And it's the beginning of a stroke. And then that's it. Um so um he's governor then, and then William Bradford becomes governor immediately afterwards. So William Bradford is governor from, from then on. I mean obviously Edward Winslow is periodically governor, but the big governor is William Bradford. So it is um I think Edward's very Winslow's very special relationship with massasoit is something which is sort of, he developed. He he wants to go and talk to them. All I was talking about with Governor Carver is that by accident of history, really, he has his figure, we see sitting down rightly to make the peace treaty. But in fact, he isn't around for the first Thanksgiving.
0: Right. And and I'm pressing on this point not just because American listeners are always interested in Thanksgiving and its history but actually what you're what you're doing here is just showing how complicated all these historical milestones actually are in practice, and the very question of origin and how complicated that is. Because Edward represents this give and take, this back and forth, uh, much more complicated relationships yes. than are measured yes. in simply a treaty was drawn and we have a document. But what you're tracing yes, book,
1: exactly.
0: is so powerful is sort of the historical contingencies, the um, that sort of everyday, you know, personalities, encounters and obstacles um, within the, the Plymouth community, but also amongst uh, the Amer- different American Indian communities uh, around them, and how all of these are coming together in very complicated ways. Um, and so, we always want—you know—we want to you know, know the beginning. We want to—we—we we, want to know how it all started. But what you're doing is showing how this idea of origins is actually this constant back and forth negotiation. Um, so, I'm wondering how how you sort of balance the kind of. Uh, the the incorporation of all these little historical contingencies with this, you know, sort of mythological and inevitable story of America.
1: Yes. I think it's very difficult. I mean, I think if you are not American in a way, you, you, it's sort of, it's not easier, but you you probably are less aware of the nuances and, (laughs) um, Obviously, if you're a historian, you want to sort of get under under the myths to find out what people were really like um as opposed to the sort of myths and um I mean that was part of the interest for me you know to see what they really were like and um particularly as there's been so much talk of the sort of genocidal tendencies of the english settlers um Which I I mean, recent opinion academics now. I think there was much more symbiosis at the beginning um, than um, in Francis Jennings' day. Um, I was I was very intrigued by the sort of background to to sort of going to America, what they were expecting, the fact that how did they learn the language so quickly? Well, a lot of the travel literature had had. um, words, um, you know, in the back sort of um, lists of vocabulary, really from the earliest times, like William Strachey, and um, obviously, John Smith. So there was, there was a sort of desire to communicate with with the people that the the, um, people that they met. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and sort of real interest in, in creating what Edward describes as a native church. I mean, for good or bad, that has bad connotations now, but he, what he means is a church amongst the people, the original people living in America, i.e. the American Indians or Native Americans. I,
0: I think most most people will be sort of surprised by some of the, the ideas c- contemporaneous to that time, such as, and you, you mentioned it briefly, that they believed that the the Indians were really white people in a sense, or you know descendants yeah. from ancient biblical tribes,
1: yes, I mean John Smith you know elaborates and sort of says under their brown skins they are white and and there was were these sort of it, it was definitely believed um that they were all descended from Adams. So I don't think there was a sort of the early settlers there I would say there really was not a sort of sense of racial division.
0: Right, right. Or that there was a there was more of an in, let's say there's more of an interest in um in the difference between people and how how Edward particularly wants to find the commonalities across those differences.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I was anxious to a report on those back to investors in London and report on their religion, um, give their vocabulary, show that they were a moral and civilized people, um, which again was something which was sort of up for discussion. Um, uh, the Spanish Empire had had these sort of public debates about sort of what was the nature of... of the peoples in the New World, and um, John Robinson, who their pastor and minister, who in fact is Governor Carver's brother-in-law, um, had these uh, very strong beliefs that um, uh, the English were not to be, as I quote, uh, magistrates over the Indians. Um, they were, you know, they were not to be, they were not to be rulers of them. So that when the English Warned by Massasoit, are forced to attack um, a sort of enemy American tribe. John um, Robinson writes a furious letter to the settlers, saying, "You know, you shouldn't have behaved like that. You shouldn't have shed their blood." So, so I think, you know, it's very. They they're really sort of are very very open minded. They later on they ask Roger Williams. who funds um Rhode Island to draw to to write a paper for them on who you know who are, who are the owners of the land who are the original owners of the land and we we just have a reference to this in um John Winthrop's journal but it and John Winthrop didn't agree with this but it is clear that Plymouth has asked Roger Williams to to sort of give his view of who holds the land and who you buy it off. So it, it's it's very, um, you know, I think it's, it's a very respectful, um, uh, very respectful of, right. of the I American mean, Indians. And of course, uh, of course, Roger Williams in one of the huge numbers of, of um, sort of letters from him refers to the fact that when he was at Plymouth after he'd been expelled from Boston, when he preached in the meeting house in Plymouth, uh, he was told he was regarded as a sachem for preaching because a lot of of uh, the American Indians like to listen to the talk in the meeting house, so you have a sense of a very symbiotic relationship in which people are coming in and out of uh, Plymouth conversing and of course we have Edward Winslow um in good news from New England discussing how he 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 wanted to talk about religion to um right. Uh, uh, someone called Corbett, who's the, the head of the Pancasic tribe. So so you you feel there's a lot of... And, and also descriptions of how they travel with the American Indians 50 miles at a time they sleep with them. There's a, a real feeling of community there to me as an English person. That's what it seemed to me.
0: Yeah, and I, 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 it is there. Um, you know, as long as we... we have access to these, to these documents and to these stories. Um, I mean, Roger Williams, you know, is, is, is more, is better known than, than Edward Winslow, but he's also sort of on the extreme end of, of his difference from the, the more orthodox religiosity of Massachusetts Bay colony. But it seems like Edward, Edward Winslow is, is interesting for all the ways we've been discussing, but also as a kind of mediator. I mean, he's, he, he, he's, he totally, I think, is akin to Roger Williams in, in, in some ways, but also he is a go-between with the Massachusetts Bay Colony leaders and then, of course, yes. the investors back in England. Um, and so he's – as yeah. you say, he's – a lot of his – a lot of Winslow's documentation of the, of Indians is to show you know how well um, the interaction is going with them to the investors back in London – and uh, but but these these accounts, although you know they were circulating then, they 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 weren't then for hundreds of years after. And in high school for me, <laughs> you know, I was we were assigned to read of uh, 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 Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation, which I remember thinking, I'm like, oh, this is, I mean, this is interesting, but kind of dry and boring. You know, it's just, it's like of Plymouth Plantation is like sort of a record of you know kind of day to day, very sort of inward looking. Um, how you describe um, Edward Winslow's accounts is they're they're more outward facing. They're more uh, relational, you know, as I I talk about ethnography. um, And and it sort of connects us back to these more recent studies, this this ethno-history sort of from the Indians' perspective and such like that, that his accounts back then match up with the most recent historiography about this moment written today.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, I am – I think that um William Bradford's prose is sort of really beautiful and marvelous um uh but quite dense and I also think that he he was a mystical person really and um he hated the idea of the community being scattered he just wanted the little church originally in Scrooby in Nottinghamshire then in Leiden finally in Plymouth to be remain this little covenanted community he did not want everyone spreading out making money interacting with the Massachusetts bay colony and i think he was emotionally he was emotionally against that you know he sees it's going to be the ruin of the church of as opposed to seeing it as sort of actually the beginning of New England, so he had a completely different outlook to to Edward Winslow and Edward and his brother John Winslow, who who died one of the richest merchants in New England. In fact, in Boston, because he leaves Plymouth, were merchants. That's not to say they weren't religious, but they were. They were sort of dynamic. Um. Merchants, really, um, with all that entails. More
0: cosmopolitan.
1: Not that William Bradford. More cosmopolitan. Not that William Bradford did not invest in opportunities because he did, but but he was really committed to this, the idea of community and church. And you see this sort of yearning prose about how awful it is and this is going to be so sad for everybody. And then, although of course, no one, everyone has to move out.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. So so. We've talked a little bit about the place of Indians in this story um, as more more complex um, through Edward Winslow's account. I want to move on to the place of women in the story. Um, It's obviously most uh, history uh, that has survived is uh, recorded or narrated by men. Um, And uh, it's very much hard to find um, women's voices in print. Um, to the same degree that there are, yeah. are men 's voices um but you do make a, a very concerted um and powerful effort to to bring in the if not the voice of women the, the presence of of women um and uh so you know there's a lot of conjecture about well perhaps she thought or she may have thought but but, but which is you know which is a standard um uh, uh mode of working for many historians today um but you also what's actually more interesting to me is that um you use the words depression and anxiety. I think um, as as, a, as to say that um, just look at their their material circumstances. You know the deaths, the the, the coming and going of wealth, uh, the the changes in, in, in the, the the churches and who's attending where. You know the dangers of medical practices of the day. So just imagine all of this stuff going on around them. Now you know how would how would you feel? How would they feel? And so you kind of use that to ground their the emotional circumstances. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how, how you see women in the story, but also how you wrote, wrote them into the story in an important way?
1: Well, I'd written a um, biography of Charlotte Bronte many years ago. So I'm very interested, obviously in women and sort of um, women's experience historically, and that they are, as you say, hidden voices or suppressed voices. So I was very curious about, women on the Mayflower, particularly as there were two births. Um, and it is very hard to get detail. It, it, um, many years ago, um, uh, uh, what is she called? Um, um, oh God, what is she called? <clears throat> uh, Thatcher Uruk, um, Oh, yeah, wrote, Laura, wrote an art, right. Exactly, wrote this wonderful article, which was called it's been always been summarised as well-behaved women do not make history, and and that's so true. And it's very hard. You have to sort of really dive into things to, you have to get into primary sources to think. There's a sort of mention here, as there's a mention there. Um, I, Susanna um, Winslow um, is on the Mayflower, and um, again, it's very difficult to get material about her. I mean, really, it's sort of, everything is sort of negative. You have to sort of wrench material out from sort of finding out that there's a letter actually from Edward Winslow to her uncle, who turns out to be connected to the Earl of Lincoln, um, probably was his steward. No other letters about uh, Susanna Winslow have ever surfaced. And this said that could could um, could he tell Susanna's father that... Um, he has married her, they've lost a child, they've got another one on the way. Um, And could he also pass back his address? So she's obviously not in contact with her father. So what I'm saying is you have to, you take all these sort of, these tiny clues and have to build up a sort of idea of someone leaving the family, not really being in contact, but in contact with someone who probably was a Puritan in the shape of her uncle, Robert Jackson, and then a new husband is in contact with him to so a sort of a sense of a puritan network and but it's right. very it's, it's quite unsatisfactory in a way, and you you have to speculate and you also have to look at um, their physical situation and I think that 's where John Demas was so interesting looking at sort of material relics um, of the pilgrims and just think what was it like, and it probably was okay for a bit. But then I think the arrival of Anne Hutchinson really changes the weather in a terrible way because a lot of the uh, Puritan women who came to New England, after all, were highly educated because Puritans believed in the book, reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but they often were vicar's daughters. They were very highly educated. They had their own opinions. And then this is Anne Hutchinson is someone with huge opinions and then they're just closed down because they conflict with the with the um, male orthodoxy and and you can see why everybody is furious because this is such a fragile little colony, Massachusetts Bay. It's only been going for five years, six years and she starts criticizing everything and, and saying scholarship isn't necessary and hierarchies aren't necessary and it's what you feel and she does say she's a prophetess so you can See, she is very anarchic, but I think John Winthrop, who writes these passionate letters to his his many wives, um, obviously believes in female education, but he sort of turns against it. So there are all these letters in which he says, um, you know, friends of his wives uh, have, uh, have become mentally ill because they've spent too much reading uh, too much time reading and not enough time attending to their household duties and I think it does, it has a really bad effect on the position of women and then you have this terrible sort of um, hysteria, uh, sort of witch witchcraft hysteria but, but it doesn't just start in 1692, it is a feature in New England history, alas, of women being accused of witchcraft so that John Norton said that um um Anne Hutchinson was really executed just for being um cleverer than other people and that yeah. and that is a very very shocking a bit, but shocking but to me very true experience yeah. so I think it must have been very difficult being a woman uh, in in New England of course Plymouth was more open minded I think cuz they were separatists but it it still must have not exactly created a climate of fear because I argue that in fact Penelope Pelham, who marries, who is the daughter-in-law of Edward Winslow, and her sister-in-law, Edward Winslow's daughter, are both feisty characters. But nevertheless, it's there up in the sky as a sort of a bit of a glass ceiling, shall we say? Right. Um, so- that they there can be these accusations of witchcraft really for just being smart.
0: Yeah. I think that's exactly true. I mean, um, Anne Hutchinson—that that story has been told uh, a, a little bit more than most of the other w- women in, in the Plymouth County because she is more extreme. But what what that has done is is sort of shown the hypocrisy and the fear of these men have towards outspoken women who are who are in many yeah. instances smarter than they are actually.
1: Well, <laughs> and, I mean, I think I think that Elizabeth Warren shows because she was sort of allowed to to have, to sort of be an undertaker in, in Plymouth Colony, shows that actually, even if, if the glass ceiling is X, you can have people sort of doing other things within that. So Plymouth was more open-minded towards women, but I think it, it cannot but have been a sort of an oppressive factor in, in sort of yeah. female education right? No, it's... or, or, or no. the way women were approached.
0: Right, right, exactly. Now, so which which brings me back to, to John Demos's book, A Little Commonwealth, which is about um, the family in in Plymouth Colony. Now, I, I have to say, I I was um, when John taught his last uh, history of Colonial America class at Yale, I was a teaching fellow for him. So oh, <laughs> so, how wonderful. So and so I know John, and um, I know that book, and and I've I've taught it with him uh, to undergrads. Oh
1: my goodness.
0: And, um, you know, one of the things that he does so well in that book and his other work is, you know, to bring in the, yes, the material culture of a place, the socioeconomic uh, factors of a place, um, and then the sort of emotional um, narrative and the psychology as well. And and he's he's really focusing on. On how these families uh, survive in terms of the roles that women take and men take differently and and similarly, and so and 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 a lot of the women in the story that you tell um, uh, are are doing. You know, it's too simple to say they're doing their duty. I mean, what they're contributing to is the is the growth and stability and strength. Of this colony, and which which I just want to return briefly to to the Laurel Ulrich yeah. quote, which you know people always say, yeah. quote which is to say, well you know well behaved women seldom make history, and it's always misunderstood to mean that well unless you're you know you're out there yelling uh, something you you know you you don't matter to history, but actually what she's saying is that there are these well quote unquote well behaved women who are who are the very sort of um, engine. Of history, it's just that yes. that they don't get the attention that they deserve. Yes, and so I, so again, yes. it's important to kind of understand it, right? That that's that's what she's saying, and that and that that's what John was interested in, in in his book about a little commonwealth, and also yes. what you're interested in terms of finding the place of these women in Edward Winslow's family, specifically.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean. Obviously, to some extent, this has to be an imaginative reconstruction. So I just wondered whether Susanna Winslow, who had children, survived in a tub colony, how seriously could she take um, John Winthrop and Co. and um, sort of thinking that, you know, the sort of um, fetal remains are, are a sign of wickedness. And I just did find it very. Interesting that actually the Winslows, by and large, do join um, an inconvenient um, but more liberal church. Um, And to me, I don't know about Susanna, but certainly Josiah was a member of the Second Church at at Situate. But this made me think maybe she just thinks actually Edward is a man who is sort sort of given his close very close friendship with, um, John Winter, and I think he becomes very influenced by him and becomes a sort of really a sort of, um, member of the Orthodox sort of group or, um, party that, that she, as a woman, I, I, I just sort of thought, Oh, well, I'm, I'm sure she was more independent minded than that, but maybe she didn't sort of discuss it. And, and all these things made me think, um, Obviously, not everything is told in you. You not everything is written down, and that made me sort of curious about sort of the internal workings of the family. But I, I think the fact that Elizabeth Winslow does her daughter um, by Edward does challenge um, the really very alarming Jonathan Corwin and takes him to court to um, to be able to educate her daughter, whereas he's trying to sort of make sure he he is really the guardian. This suggested quite a sort of um, friendly um, atmosphere to women within the household. So that whereas Edward might be getting more and more what I would call right wing in his old age, maybe that wasn't true of all the people within the Winslow household.
0: Well, I mean, it's obvious that they're they're observing Edward. The women in the Winslow household are observing Edward um, befriending John Winthrop and these other people in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and noticing that. That they they operate a bit differently than we do here at Plymouth. So yeah. of course, of yeah. course, the uh, the others witnessing this are going to be like, well, Edward was more like this before, and now he's a little bit different since he's made friends with those people <laughs> yeah. up there, right? Um, I mean, just yeah. the, like the basic emotional uh, narrative is can be, is quite cu- clear, I think, and it's right for you to sort of bring that out.
1: I, I mean, I, I was I was very interested in the fact that. When there is this great thing, um, the remonstrance um, and uh, the Orthodox Party under John Winthrop want, want to make it more difficult for people to join churches, whereas, of course, um, the sort of newer merchants want to make it, want to have civil rights for people if they're, even if they're not members of the independent churches. But basically, Edward Winslow and William Bradford together stop. A motion for freedom of religion coming to Plymouth Colony, because it was almost certain to get through, because of um, you know it, it all. It, it, most scholars think that that Plymouth would have. There were enough deputies saying yes, we don't mind. We're we're sort of independent minded. Yeah. So it was a different a different milieu to to uh, Massachusetts, and that's why. Um, William Bradford just refuses to allow the motion to be actually to be put to to the Plymouth government because he and Edward Bates think if it's put,
0: why would they not want it to pass if they are
1: because because of- they um because they want a New England which is a godly New England founded by these marvelous covenanted. Independent churches; they don't want this sort of godly New England to be polluted by people coming from New England and uh, from Old England, who wouldn't be part of, of this new place, but but not joining the churches. I.e., they're not going to, you know, they they're not they they want freedom of religion, and and this is why Edward, of course, goes to Old England to try and stop people being able to appeal to um, London. Um, to say, of course, you don't need to join um, the congregational churches if you want to have a vote. So they they want a New England as as they sort of founded it, uh, the people, you know, the Scrooby Church, or the Leiden Church, this is going to be a godly place in which everyone has to have um, to be members of the church. Although, of course, Plymouth didn't require church membership um, for the franchise. And in fact, Edward's um, stepson, Peregrine White, didn't become a member of any church till almost sort of just before he died. So it obviously was a much, much more liberal place.
0: Yeah, right. It's much more.
1: I I mean, liberal is the wrong word, but sort of more open minded.
0: Right. More complicated than we think, certainly. Now, what's sort of interesting though is that, okay, so their Edward and and William Bradford are worried that that their church and their vision of a community will be diluted by people by settler, yeah. colonial settlers who are not interested in creating the communities within these churches. So they yeah. they they see that their friends up in Massachusetts Bay Colony are are also interested in, in, in keeping the their communities pure in this regard. However, it's, yeah. it, it sort of backfires, yeah. right, in the sense that then these alliances now that are forming between the colonists across the different colonies are actually creating, say, the Indians um, as more of an enemy. So like what, what what begins to happen, and your book sort of traces, is that there's this sort of celebratory uh first part of the story with so much potential um and then as more and more colonists come over um and there's more I- english people to manage and edward uh, aligns himself for 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 reasons of power and 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 the yeah. economics with the people in Massachusetts Bay colony that then this is forming this sort of behemoth of of what will become a kind of intolerance towards even those yes. indians that edward found uh, uh, so um, – a potential to, to become a part of uh, some kind of community. Um, so it's a, it's, yes. his alliance with the Massachusetts Bay kind of helps ensure that there's, there's a church here at the base, but also it's going to – it's kind of going to backfire as generations go on and there's more of a separation between the English and the Indians.
1: Well, that that was my opinion. And I think that um, in fairness, to do justice to the settlers, the um, people coming from England, of course, the Indian tribes do become very, you, you know, after the Peacock War, certainly the word has gone out. They do begin to become very suspicious of the English with reason. Right. Um, so probably they are much more they are more hostile on the other hand this is all in my view poked by uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony not really knowing enough about the people they're living with as opposed to Plymouth Um, and yes I think there is you know academics say there is this real problem in that um, the Anne Hutchinson affair has sort of has polluted this glorious wilderness, are the Indians part of Satan being in the wilderness. They're, 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 they start, uh, the clergy start looking at the Indian tribes in a different way um, and, and start being much more hard and fast about what they believe in great contrast to the open-mindedness of Plymouth. I mean, obviously some English colonists are not like that, but the sort of the governing mood is a sort of hostility. And then, of course, it's not helped, really, by Samuel Gorton taking the part of the Narragansetts and um, um, stirring it up. But um, the Narragansetts leader has been executed. Um, So so I think it really... The sort of... um, the, the very lovely symbiosis that does start to degenerate. And it's very sad because John Winthrop's diary mentions, you know, in one of his uh, entries is that Edward, Wins- he sort of saw Edward Winslow and his old ally, um, Meekin, which is the other name for Massasoit. As you know, Indians have many names. Mm-hmm. How he, go? he's sort of taken home by his old ally and then Massfoot plays a trick on him and it's he John Winthrop at the beginning is obviously sort of marvelling at, at at the New World and then because of the because of uh, the English colonists moving into Connecticut and displacing um uh, the the Indian tribes there and already the have got very jumpy because they'd escaped the plague of uh, the sixteen um, sixteen plague, which had wiped out a lot of Massasoit people but it, in 1633 it it starts to wipe them out and these terrible tensions start to arise so that everyone is what you might call trigger happy right. and then it sort of goes downhill from there and you know um, uh, Alfred A. Cave said that, um, that the Peacock War, I think it was him, that it's a short, it's a small war which casts a very big and uh, or maybe old and broad. Anyway, it's a very small war to cast an enormous shadow, and and I would totally agree. I think then you get this this sort of terrible um, un, unraveling of the, the relationship between the English and Indians. And some people think that William Wood is far too sort of optimistic about. He's he uh, he comes in 1633 and writes in this ecstatic way about the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but. But I disagree. I mean, I think it sort of ties in with what Edward Winslow has been saying, and that there is this sort of, sort of, you know, wonderful relationship between the two. But after 1637, then it all starts to go downhill.
0: I mean, it, it's one of the lessons I take from that, and the way you tell it, is that, you know, the larger... The community of settlers becomes, the harder it is to maintain that symbiosis with the other communities that are there yeah whereas when you're at a smaller scale, the com- like, uh, different communities like Plymouth and different individuals can interface uh, in much more uh, nuanced ways with with people who are different from them
1: yes I'm, people, I- it's
0: just harder to find a way to to combine <laughs> you know in any sort of interesting
1: I, I agree, and I think that um, the fact is that, rather like Edward Winslow, Roger Williams was also really passionately interested in the um, American Indians. Said, so, you know, there are all these letters saying, "I just wanted to be in their smoky holes and understand their souls, and and not see any English." And then he is given shelter against Massachusetts Bay by Massasoit, and then by the Narragansetts. And he, you know, his his um land at Providence is actually measured out by this famous um chief, Canonicus, and he's buried Canonicus is buried in a gift of cloth from Roger Williams. And there was this wonderful description of how um he, Canonicus is laid to rest as reverently as John Winthrop, this is um Roger Williams speaking. And you know, there's such an appreciation there because they gave him shelter. And he also writes letters when the English start deciding um, that the American Indians should be living in in um, praying towns wearing English or European-style clothing. Um, he writes a letter sort of um, saying, you know, uh, these people have given us shelter when we were, uh, we had enemies in our homeland surely they deserve better than to be treated like this because various people are saying please don't put us in in english towns so so i agree there's a kind of a sort of the the personal is very important here and then if, if you don't have personal interaction obviously people you know become um less sort of interested in one another
0: yeah we, we just have a a few more minutes left, but I wanted to bring in um, quickly then Josiah, who is Edward's son. Yes. And Josiah so. uh, very much um, is is a a leader during the when the wars between the Indians and the colonists kind of get out of hand. So in some ways that the structure of the book, you know, it's first half is about about Edward, the father. And then the second half is about is about Josiah, the son, and how how um, alliances go awry and. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about Josiah's place in the story and how his relationship with his father uh, factors into this?
1: Well, I was very curious in that um, William Hubbard, um, the clergyman wrote an account of a history of New England. And then he wrote the history of the Indian Wars, um, very contemporary. Um, And in, two or three versions, he notes the extreme animosity of Wamphita or King Philip towards Josiah. And that and Josiah himself in a letter says, I hear that um, uh, Philip is sort of after me. And this to me was of great interest. You know, why, you know, there are lots of people living in Plymouth. Why should Philip particularly focus on Josiah? And I discovered that, um, that uh, Josiah had become much more involved in trade like his father with uh, with Boston. He had a sort of import-export business. Um, he also had a very aristocratic English-American Bostonian wife, uh, Penelope Pelham. And he obviously visited um, England quite a lot and also because he supervised Herbert Pelham, the first treasurer of Harvard's um, Son, son who was Penelope's half brother who came back to inherit um, Herbert Pellet's land in New England, and I think he just he didn't have that connection. And everyone, you know, it's well known. Scholars say that in the second generation of settlers, there is there is well they have noticed this fear of what what's known as Creolization, a sort of fear of losing. Your original sort of where you're coming from, your original sort of civilization, and is it that, like many other people, um, Josiah could not could not have a sort of interest in the Indians because he feared he was he was growing was he growing to like them? No, obviously not. Well, but was he losing his sort of Englishness? And it, to me, it was very curious that that he sees the, the Indians as very insolent and arrogant whereas of course the first generation settlers think they're noble and wonderful and they like the sort of arrogance which they see as noble so it's like the whole thing has turned 360 degrees and I I think he, we don't know what his relationship with his father was but after all his father had left um, I mean he had to assume a lot of responsibilities in Plymouth but I think it's not really I think that uh, Edward Winslow was obviously a big figure in the life of the kids and I think that maybe you know there's a sort of resentment there yeah. that this was meant to be their father's friend and then sort of now the son is not a friend at all and and I think you know why would William Hubbard invent the sort of particular malice of King Philip Winslow sort of towards Josiah Winslow. I mean uh he was no more he was no worse than everyone else um but they had become very suspicious and and rightly so clearly um sometime before the war actually breaks out uh king philip has come to the conclusion that you know it's now or never and um particularly as as his father very foolishly is selling more and more land and you know, Josiah obviously has an, a, a sort of um attitude to land, which is which is not that of Roger Williams. And I think this is all tremendously hard to combat. I think the tragic thing about Philip is he he wanted to modernize. I mean, a lot of the Indian tribes wanted European technology. And um, Philip actually asked John Eliot to send someone to teach his people to read so it's not that he is turning his back on a sort of different, you know, sort of possibly advantageous culture, but um, he realizes that, that actually no one is really thinking of them in the way, the Wampanoags in the way that John Robinson had been, that these are their own, rulers, their own land and that, that eventually they are just going to take over. As, as um, So, so I think a lot of things come into play. I think the, the execution of Miantonimo was a really terrible, terrible moment. Um, and uh, the, the young chief of the Narragansetts. And I think that, that that was sort of a sort of sacrilege, really. I mean, this was a local royal family and, and, you know, they were, sac- he was sacrificed without really a backward thought. And I think that just made everyone feel completely threatened that they, the english the, Indian tribes tended to sort of be quite benevolent towards the English at first, and then they feel they're not being treated with the respect that they, as the original um, people, you know, imagine. Right. And so, I I mean, what I found very, very sort of something I found really interesting was that um, quite soon, uh, both uh, Narragansett and indeed um, King Philip find out that that actually the real sort of equivalent to themselves is the Stuart royal family in England and because they're oh, hereditary okay. royal people. Um, and all these other people are just that's elected sick. people. They are not. Yeah. And, and so that's why you have these extraordinary contemporary accounts. So it's not invented of Philip demanding, you know, he's not going to be tried by anyone other than his
0: brother um charles the first right right so he's and, aligning with the thing um, back in back in england and saying who are you minions yeah, over here <laughs> yeah bring me to your camp. exactly. i'm and, higher more powerful yeah, than you are
1: yeah so i find that even though it's probably samuel gordon stirring it all up clearly they were royal families and just amazed at the sort of new system of things and, and um yeah so, so I, I think Josiah Winslow. It's, it's generational, um. But I think he is also quite an arrogant man who has a sort of sense of caste, which probably wasn't present in his father.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I, I think it all comes down to power and you know shifting p- power dynamics yeah. and the, the, the need for it and the desire for it. The more you have it, and uh, it is interesting. Yeah. How Josiah's treatment of the of the Indians, um, seeing them as as er- too arrogant and dismissing them is a kind of negotiation he's having with his father, too. Um, in, in,
1: yes, in, maybe.
0: Through the Indians. And I, and I, I only say that b- because so, so much of our treatment of people who are, quote-unquote, other than us are, is really a reflection of our own, you know, questions and problems and anxieties about ourselves, you know, but we're just using...
1: Yes, no, I think...
0: ...to work through. So he this seems to be yes. one more example in the long history of the world <laughs> of that dynamic.
1: Yes, yeah. No, no, I think that's... Um... True I mean, it's very interesting that actually Josiah really obviously doesn't have any problems with with sort of writing groveling letters to um, Charles II, whereas of course his father and, and Co. were really sort of quite strong republican, well, republicans, in the sense that they they didn't see kings as particularly special. I mean they, you know they were very sort of a new, a new people really, the the, the settlers, or were indeed the Massachusetts Bay settlers.
0: Well, we have to end uh, now, uh, right? But uh, but we could obviously keep talking about this endlessly fascinating and detailed history <laughs> that you bring to to new life. Um, uh, and a fun fact I just wanted to add was that actually my my partner um, is uh, Conrad Winslow is descended from the Mayflower Winslow. <laughs>
1: um, oh, how amazing! I know, it just so happens. So he must be connected to Robert Lowell
0: um you know, we have to we have to take a close look at the family tree to see where where all the yes are, are 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 coming down but uh but yeah but he but so those yes, yes. are are alive and well and in conrad is a so
1: he's book. really called really he's really book. called winslow yes last name how, winslow.
0: Winslow. Yes, last name.
1: how wonderful yeah. Oh, well, please give him my um, best. (laughs) I
0: will. (laughs) I will. And of course, but this, this, as you show, the Winslow story is, is, is that it is the story of America in so many ways. Um, Again, we have been talking to Rebecca Frazier and her new book uh, just out from St. Martin's Press is called The Mayflower, The Families, The Voyage, and the Founding of America. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much.